Welcome to Voices of Experience. Here's your host, Kate Delaney. Uh, Welcome to the October 2016 Voices of Experience. Can you believe it? Just a couple of months until the end of this calendar year. So this time around, we talk a little bit about the significance of millennials who are meeting planners and why you need to be able to get into their world or sort of peek into their brain. Speaking of brains, John Molitor, the president of the National Speakers Association in our monthly conversation, talks about influence and big brain and the future. SEO. Where's your SEO? Are you rolling your eyes and thinking, I know everything there is to know about SEO? I'm going to challenge you. I bet you don't. Wait till you hear our technology piece this time around. Vision boards. Do you care about vision boards? Is that something of the past? I'll tell you why. It's probably not, at least for some of you, why it's so, so significant. And your voice. Really getting heard in the right way. How does your voice sound? What can you do if you lose your voice and you have a gift? So sit back, relax, and get ready for this edition. Oh, that's right. Brian Walter, president-elect of the National Speakers Association, wanted to stop by. We didn't get to him last month. He's here this time around to give us an incredible piece of information. He says that's going to transform our business. So get ready. Here we go. Excited to welcome to the show Bill Staten. Excited to be here, Kate. Thanks so much for coming. And it's you been a and I were... since I've been back on VOE. Exactly. It feels like home. And you and I were talking off the air about something that um, I think about a lot and something you you talk to chapters about and you talk to people about because they always ask you that question since you have, what is it, a gazillion Emmys, like 29 I, Emmys? I got lucky. <laughs> yeah, I got lucky. And with your showbiz background and, and um, all the writing experience and platform experience. So how do you hit it out of the park every time? How do you nail it every time? Well, first of all, like everybody else, I, I don't nail it every time. Um, but that's 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 the goal. Uh, because as as you know, your best marketing, I mean, everybody talks about this, Joe Calloway talks has talked about it a long time, that your best marketing is to is to just kill it on the platform. To be spectacular on the platform. Not just good, not just exceeding expectations, but super exceeding expectations. So how do you do that? The first thing is You've got to have this mindset. I, I know this is kind of anathema to what a lot of NSA people think, because they think, oh, it's about them, and I want to give the content and that sort of thing. And yes, you want to do that, but you've got to realize it's a show. It's a show. Now, I'm, I'm a keynoter, so there's a little bit of a difference there. But even if you're a trainer, the minute you're introduced, the minute you take the stage or the front of the room or whatever, they're sitting back to watch the movie. You know, and and you're the movie. Now that doesn't mean it's just all one way. You can, and in many, if not most cases, should have interactive components, even if you're doing a keynote or something. But you're the person up there. You're you're the show. And I think a lot of um, a lot of members just kind of think if I give the information, I'm doing my job. They're not buying your information. If all they want was your information, they go to Amazon and get it for nine ninety nine. What they're buying is your delivery of your information. That's why it's important for you to be there in front of the audience. So I, th- I think we need to take that really seriously, that that's, that's part of our job, to give the information, but also to give it in an entertaining way. And entertaining doesn't necessarily have to mean you know, a laugh a minute, but it's, you know, give, them, give them an experience, give them a memorable experience. So how do you sex up your material? 
Okay, so we're going in that direction, are we? <laughs> well, you you know, you, you come up with your best stories. Well, the, the first thing you do is, well, for me, I'm a structuralist. I'm, I'm a producer. I mean, my, my job for a million years was as a TV producer, where you figure out, okay, here's the TV show. What's the flow of that show going to be? Where's the energy going to be high? Where's the energy going to be low? And by low, I don't mean boring. I just mean a quiet energy and then a loud energy. So you have, you have the peaks and valleys, and you realize this is the flow of the show. A lot of speakers don't seem to think of themselves as the producer of their speech, training, webinar, whatever, and they don't realize that there's an arc and there's a flow to that whole thing. So what you need to do is kind of realize that there are moments where you need to pick up the energy. I call them bathroom blockers. You know, have you ever had this experience where you go to a movie, like a two-hour movie, mm-hmm. and you make the, the mistake of buying the swimming pool size Coke beforehand, and you drink it all down, and all of a sudden around you know the seven, you know, 70 minutes in, you realize you've made a horrible mistake, mm-hmm. but you can't go to the bathroom because something good's happening. And then you wait for a boring part, and you get up and you start to move out, and then something good happens again. It's like, oh, I gotta go sit down again. Well, you want your speech to do that also. You can't have it all be bathroom blockers, but you want to build these moments in. And that means looking at your speech like a timeline and realizing, oh, you know what? I haven't had one for a while. I haven't had a bathroom blocker for a while, so I need one. Now, what's a bathroom blocker? It could be a killer story. And that, again, that doesn't mean it has to be filled with laughs. It could be you know, a really, wow, quiet story. It could be an audience activity. It could be if you're Janice Stanfield or Mike Rayburn, you know, it's a phenomenal song. If you're Dan Thurman, you do a handstand on the lectern. Um, You know, when Dan Thurman does his handstand on the lectern, nobody's going to the bathroom. Why? Because he might die and you don't want to miss that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but but you've got to think as a producer, okay, I need something here, here, and here. And that's, that's how you do it. Right, so you have your speech laid out and now look at it just exactly the way you said it and come up with those moments because we probably all have them and if you don't, you start to create them. Right, exactly, exactly, you start to create them. But the first step is realizing that you need them. Because I've, I've seen so many people when they develop their, their, their presentations and their programs, they just kind of do it, line- well, I just want to say this so I'll just say it. But they again, they don't think of, okay, what's the experience, what's the emotional experience that you're bringing your audience, you know, th- w- w- what's the emotional journey that I want to use to bring my audience along? It's, it's doing a show, you know, watch a movie, watch a TV show you like and say, okay, how are they doing it? Oh, they do this, this. Go see, I just, I just bought tickets to see Springsteen in concert. He's amazing. You know, he comes out and, he, you know, Springsteen and the E Street Band, and they come out and bam, 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 they just hit you over the head with great song, great song. And then all of a sudden it's just Bruce with an acoustic guitar. And the energy is still there, but it's a different energy. But, but if, if the entire concert, and he does like three, four hour concerts, if they were all bam, 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 that would be too exhausting. So you need, you need those moments, at, but that's, that's looking at the entire show, which whether it's a one hour keynote or a three day training, as an arc. As an arc, I like it. Yeah. For you, the best, the, the best moment that you can think of, and I'm sure there's been many of them. There have not re- been that many. Where you really feel like you hit it out of the park when you're like, oh, this is great. Let's go celebrate. Yeah. You know, for me, I always, it's always, it, you know, it's fun to get standing ovations, but they're really, when you start getting them, you realize that they're kind of meaningless. I mean, they're a nice little ego boost. 
But look, some audiences will stand at anything, he said to the NSA listeners. Uh, and some audiences, no matter how good you are, they're just, we really like you, we just don't stand. You know, that's, 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 so that's not really that telling. For me, my measure of how, whatever, yes, obviously if you have people coming up to you saying, uh, what's your calendar like in May, because I've got 17 events I'd like you to do, that's a good sign. For me, I always feel, when I, when I leave the stage, and fortunately, it gets, gets to a point where this happens more often than not, when I leave the stage feeling more energized than I did coming on the stage. I mean, you always want to come on with energy, but what that means is that you got so much energy back from the audience that they have now fed your energy. And the only way you do that is by taking them on that journey. So it just, you know, it, it, it feels like play. I mean, you're just playing, you're just having fun. And um, it doesn't happen every single time because it is that kind of, you know, you get in the sense of flow. Mm-hmm. Something like that, but boy, when that happens, doesn't that just, it just, it's the greatest feeling. The best. So you mentioned this at the top. Uh, I mentioned it. Of course, your your background in, in showbiz, 29 Emmys. Yeah. What, you don't have that many bathrooms in your house. Where are you putting your Emmys? Uh, I do have one in the guest bathroom. And you know why? Because I figured my guest, the guest in my house, nobody wants to be the one to ask, can I host? But the guest bathroom, the door is shut, they're there by themselves, and there's a mirror. So I figured they that way they can you know do you know do that. Um, I actually lost a lot in an earthquake. There, there was an earthquake in Seattle a few years ago, and Emmy an Emmy is a really poorly designed statue. Yeah, it's got really some, the ankles are weak, the globe is weak, the wings are weak. So I actually have a bag in my garage of about probably a dozen broken Emmys, uh, which is a sad metaphor for something. <laughs> I don't know why. I love it. Yeah. This is a perfect place to end this on broken Emmys. <laughs> wow. <Bill> Sad face. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. Thanks. CSP Anna Layata joins us now to talk about generational codes. In fact, that's the name of her book. She's the author of Unlocking Generational Codes. She's a generational speaker on leadership, diversity, and inclusion. How did you get into dealing with generational issues and taking it to various companies and seeing it really kind of explode for you? It's a great question. Well, I have to say it began organically. I am the youngest girl of 19 children. So I grew up in a generation of six households. And I started my observations very early. I began the deeper research in university in my undergraduate degree and actually wrote my first academic paper on it 26 years ago. So I've been in this field for a long time and I have been speaking on it exclusively for the last 15 years. So you say you've been speaking the last 15 years because you realized generation. Right. So you realized that's where I need to be because you knew so much about it. Yes. I noticed in my consulting because I've had my consultancy in my speaking business for 20 years. And I noticed that more and more often companies would come to me with a problem that I could hear the source of it was generational. So I actually began the conversation before it was very popular because at the time people were starting to notice it, the newest generation entering was the Gen Xers. 
and there's only 44 million Gen Xers. So we had 80 million baby boomers ever born, then it went down to 44 million Gen Xers. So when it became popular and hot, which is right now, is because of the 76 million millennials that we have born in the US, and that doesn't even include the global workforce that's coming in of millennials from all over the world. So this is why we're hearing so much about it right now in the workplace, and we're also hearing, of course, about it in politics, because we now have the entire millennial generation, 18 to 34, is a voting age. And so they will be influencing not only the workplace, but the future of our country. So I know every company's different and every situation's different, but if we were going to generalize and, and take a big, broad smack at this with a, with a brush, when you talk about millennials, and that number is huge, and I'm sure there's some people listening that in what they're doing right now, consulting, et cetera, could beef up their game with millennials. What are some of the things to keep in mind in dealing with a workforce where you have, and you're teaching this, where you have millennials and baby boomers and everything in between? Every single client every single audience is grappling right now with how to include and optimize the millennials experience for one to attract them as an employee to retain them as a top talent at, for an audience they want them to come to their conference they want to enjoy their experience while they're there and they want them to leave the conference saying that applied to me so as speakers we have to think about our stories are our stories referencing our own generational experience and excluding the increasing numbers of millennials in our audience do we tell inside stories that only are funny to people born within a 10-year range of us either way. And so we have to be really aware that something that lands very well for the baby boomers or for the Gen Xers in the audience, the millennials may be sitting there thinking, seriously? And they're thinking it's either not relevant, not applicable, and worst, they might even think it's pathetic. So how do you beef up your game? Do you start going to see, like, uh, become a fan of Katniss Everdeen and Mockingjay and go to the youth section in uh, BNN and start reading, you know, all of that kind of literature? How do, you, how do you beef up your game with millennials? Let's say if you're not a parent, don't have a millennial or, or whatnot. And how do you research that? It can be difficult. I do not myself have children. So I have to become incredibly curious. I have to engage with young people and really ask for their perspective. Ask them how they see it. What are they watching? What are they listening to? And then, yes, I actually have to immerse myself in the things that they're passionate about. Not to say that they're right about anything, but to say that I'm seeking to understand, to stand in their perspective for a while, to stand in what I would call their generational code, really seeking to understand what's fascinating to them. And it's interesting because there is no one thing with our millennial audience members that they're fascinated by. You can do it very simply like this. You can say, well, what are you watching? Are you watching and then suggest a show? And you will not find one show except for Star Wars. <laughs> that is, I think that is actually a phenomenon we'll never see again, where every generation will be watching one movie. But you will see as you ask them and ask them why they're interested in that and what it means to them, that you'll start to get the pulse and the beat of what they're passionate about. And then you need to be able to weave that into your presentation. Or as a consultant or as a facilitator, as an author, you need to be able to weave that into your way of referencing things. I'll give you a specific example. I would say, 
what do the adults in Charlie Brown's world sound like in my presentation? And all of the Gen Xers and baby boomers would say, wah, 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 wah. And then I was speaking in front of an exclusively millennial audience. And I said that and they went, <laughs> now the Charlie Brown movie came out this year, so we're getting back to them having a reference point. But there was a period in which I thought I was saying something that would transcend but they were like, mm, that's not a reference point for us. So it can go right down to that level. It's all about the pandas. Or the minions, or right? Or the minions, exactly. Yeah. So, so so if I went to visit you and if I was up in that in the uh, Seattle area, would Anna take me out on a hoverboard and we'd go gaming somewhere so we could relate to the millennials? Well, up in Seattle, we would probably actually go out and do something on water. We'd go hiking. We would go to the very outdoorsy things like that but yeah we would hit some hip spots so there, so it's research you got to do the research on millennials that's the way to nail it that's right first of all you got to get curious you got to start observing and um, being aware of when you are doing something that's comfortable something that you've done a million times you actually need to question anything that you've done a million times probably has a shelf life that you haven't recognized what happens if we don't do this you will get less and less bookings because event planners are changing. This is really important to understand that that event planner that you have spent all those years building the relationship with is probably considering the R word, the retirement. And so the person that comes behind them, one, won't be in the job as long as the person that you worked with. And two, they're looking at why they bring someone in for a very different reason. They are looking at TED Talks as the model for what they're looking at. Can you get to your point in 12 to 17 minutes? And I know oftentimes we're thinking, I can't even get through my first signature story <laughs> in 12 to 17 minutes. And the millennial who is growing up with sound bites and they're growing up with shorter and shorter attention spans, they're thinking that a six second vine gets the job done or a 12 minute TED talk. So when you are pitching yourself as a speaker, you have to be pitching and positioning yourself in the generational code and perspective of the person that's buying. So you can't say, I've always done it this way, these are the practices, these are channels that I've marketed myself on that were successful because they work for you. You have to be asking the question, what are the Gen Xers that I'm selling to who want to cut to the chase, get to the bottom line? They don't want to hear all about your family and your vacation and your golf game. They don't take time to play golf. They want to be spending time with their kids. So if you spend the first 20 minutes of the phone call with a potential buyer in a get-related conversation, if you have a Gen Xer on the other side of the phone, they are nearly dying with pain about having to listen to all this that they don't care about. Anna, you said it all. Thank you so much. I'm going to go uh, get a hoverboard and come up and see you. I'm going right. to get you on that hoverboard. All right. Well, you know what? We'll take the hoverboard out on the golf course because they now have <laughs> golf course hoverboards that you can put your golf cart, you know, golf bag on and off we go. I like it. Thank you so much. Time for the monthly oops moment when speakers reveal, well, when things didn't go quite as planned. Oops. Mickey Williams, CSP, CPAE, uh, my oops moment. Oh my gosh, there's so many. But I remember I being interviewed right after a speech and they it was the summertime and we're in the studio now and they put a body mic on me and it was the old days because I've been speaking for a long time and they taped it to my body and it was quite heavy and I was wearing a scoop neck shirt. 
Don't get ahead of me here. And so while I'm speaking, I can feel the tape dislodging from my body because it's so hot in the studio and it's starting to pull the weight of this microphone down. So my scoop neck shirt, I can feel is becoming a very big scoop neck. And so while I'm talking to the interview, trying to be very poised, I'm constantly looking down, going how far is this microphone taking my shirt before the interview is over? And that was one of my many oops. Hi, I'm Barry Banther, and the biggest oops that happened to me, I'm still trying to get over. I was speaking to a pretty sophisticated audience of business people and business leaders in Miami, and I really wanted to make the point that if you wanted to be a person of influence, if you wanted to attract people to you, then you needed to be self-deprecating. So I'm really pushing the point about why self-deprecation is something that will attract people, why self-deprecation means that you're trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And I began to notice that people were snickering. Some people were covering their mouths and the meeting planner was down front and I'm just continuing pushing hard on being self-deprecating and finally she motions to me to come over to the edge of the stage and I do and I lean down and she says to me you're saying self-defecating <laughs> I never heard it I did not know that was coming out of my mouth so I listened to the tape I hardly believed it my biggest oops is an oops that I'm still trying to live down this is Kelly Verla. I just wanted to give you an oops moment. And it, you learn from these things. You know, if you do it again, then you're an idiot. Um, but I held up a prize that somebody was going to come and get. And I said, oh, that's you. Come and get this prize. And this man ran so passionately toward me that he fell. And he fell into me, knocked me completely over. And I'm still holding the prize in my hand. I'm lying on the floor. The mic is still hot. He's on top of me. And I go, well, you sure won, didn't you? <laughs> This is Stu Schlackman, and my biggest oops moment that I can remember in recent history, it was about three years ago, I was doing a presentation down in Austin, Texas, to a group of 45 project managers. And we were having a good time, things were going well, and I had a lavalier mic. And we decided to take a 10-minute break, so what do you do during a 10-minute break? I decide to go to the men's room, and I forgot to turn off the mic. And I come back into the room after using the men's room and everybody is hysterical laughing at me because they were able to hear what I was doing in the men's room along with other people. And that was probably the most embarrassing moment, but everybody took it really well. It was kind of funny laughing and uh, <laughs> it was crazy. So now from now on, I know exactly what to do before I go in the bathroom is turn that mic off. It's Jill's Juicy Bites, the place to get communication strategies to grow your business. Here's Jill Schiffelbein. Hey everyone, Jill Schiffelbein here with another Juicy Bite. Let's really get deep diving into SEO, search engine optimization, keywords, and I'm not approaching this from the, here's how you need to do this exactly for your website standpoint, but I wanna give you a broad understanding of what SEO and keywords really mean to you as a speaker. So let me break it down to you, and then hopefully you'll be able to extrapolate how you can now reconceptualize a keyword strategy that you're using in your business. So rewind here to the beginning of how we in most of our lifetimes have searched for information. Yeah, I know there may be a generation gap here, but bear with me. Back when I was in grade school, junior high, and even high school, believe it or not, I went to this thing called a library. 
and in a library, it had these things called books. And if I had something that I needed to search for, I had to think of one word and go to this, 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 this structure that had drawers called a card catalog and pull out a drawer with one word and find some pieces of information, then go to the shelves, pull down that book, good old Dewey Decimal System in action. And sometimes you'd get a hit, sometimes you'd get a miss, but eventually you found what you were looking for. Well, fast forward to when search engines on the internet really started to take prominence in the mid-1990s. And when we first started organizing information and cataloging it online, we did it around the best organizational structure that we knew at the time, and that was the card catalog system. So when you're typing in something in a search, you did it by a single word, and that's where the term keyword came from. Now, fast forward to even, let's say, a decade later, so we're like in the uh, early 2000s right now, and it became possible to add more than one word in your search. So we started to get files and subfiles, if you will. Now you can type in a word and another word. So for example, when I was in eighth grade, I had to do this thesis, and I was obsessed for whatever reason with understanding ghosts and poltergeists. So this is me, small town Kansas girl, and of course this is what I want to learn about, right? So I go to the card catalog and search for G, ghosts. But then I'd have to go and search under P for poltergeists, and I couldn't do both. But if it was 2005, I would have been able to type in ghosts and poltergeists and get the best targeted results. But now let's go even forward another 10 years or so to where we're at now, 2016. And you know how we all search? We don't even type anything in. We hold up our phone and say, hey Siri, or hey whatever the Amazon one is, or hey, you know, whatever we wanna call our mobile assistants now. Hey, and then we ask it a question. We no longer type in ghost and poltergeist. We say, what's the difference between a ghost and a poltergeist? And that's how we search. So when we first started building our websites, most of us who have been in this business, even for five years, we started building a website based on keywords, based on really going back to that idea of Dewey Decimal System, one, maybe even the Boolean search, two words at a time, and we built our websites and we optimized our content strategy around it. Well, here's the deal. Y'all know my thing is communication strategies for using technology to grow your business. That's what I do. Here's the deal. When you're thinking of how to reach your audience now, when it comes to SEO and keywords, yes, the foundation that you've grown already is good, and here's how you add to it. So if you already have a website, you have those keywords are doing well for you, here's what you need to do to make it even better. And that is make sure on your site that you have, instead of just the keywords, those keywords placed in questions. Let me give you a couple examples for this. If you were teaching someone public speaking skills, for example, your keyword would probably be presentation, public speaking, presentation skills, public speaking skills, maybe platform skills, and other variations. Now what you need to do to add to the presence you already have online is be sure to put questions. So what are ways to reduce nerves when public speaking? How can I be a better public speaker on stage? How can I give a better presentation? Those phrases and questions, if you can get those more exact to the way that your audience is going to be looking for you, and again, your audience is looking for you now by asking questions for problems that they want to solve, you're going to be able to better get them 
to traffic and visit your site and your content. This is a strategy that I used on YouTube when I created this big video series that has now blown up and gotten me a lot of opportunities solely because I didn't just focus on keywords. Now I focused on questions. When you communicate with your audience using technology, do it in a way that they think. When they're looking for you, they have a question, they want an answer. And if you change your SEO strategy to reflect that, you're gonna be found much more frequently. Wow, Jill's Juicy Bites this month was so interesting, talking about SEO and how many times do you hear that word, SEO, what does it mean, how can I truly optimize? It's not that we're all confused, but it's that we want to do it the right way. So I thought it'd be fun to flush this out a little bit more for a few more minutes with Jill. Hey, Jill. Hey, Kate. Thanks for having me. I love your analogy about the library and looking up ghosts and poltergeists. And really, you <laughs> gave us a sense of, of course, how it used to be. But now we have this amazing tool. But the problem is a lot of people don't know how to use the tool correctly. And you mentioned the idea of thinking of the questions that would be asked when, if somebody was trying to search you, what their question would be. So give us a, another example of that. You know, let's say you speak on leadership. I know there's a lot of people who say, oh, I'm a leadership expert, right? Well, if you just Google leadership, a million billion hits are going to come up. And that is such an overused keyword. And let's be honest, all of us, if we're entrepreneurs in our own way, are leadership experts, right? So if you really want to establish your expertise and people out there have it, you need to think what are the biggest problems that you solve and what are the biggest questions that your audience has. And you think of it in terms of, you know, what problem needs to be solved, but what are their pain points too? And what are they actually asking in the search engines when they're home alone, they're not around their colleagues, they're not around their bosses, they're not around their peers. What questions are they really typing in and asking and how are they getting help? If you can find those questions and put them verbatim on your site, you're gonna be set up for success. Another example of this, if you have videos that are out there, and this is huge, you have videos out there on YouTube, you probably have these great descriptions about the information that is in your video. And I've heard a couple of times in different phrases, so I'm paraphrasing right now, is information does not equal transformation. So think of it that way. Information is the description that you're putting out there, but if you want to be transformative, you have to be able to answer questions, which means solving problems. So you need to put, in addition to that information-based description, those transformational questions that you're going to help people answer. That all goes in that same, quote, description area or box when you're putting in a YouTube video, and that's how people find you more accurately. Right, so we're not necessarily, so we're talking about the box area to make sure everybody knows that's right. where you want to put it. Right, where you would normally type in your description. You type in your description and then you add the questions. I like to phrase it on my videos as what questions does this video answer? And then I put three to five bulleted questions that are answered by that video that I've posted in addition to the informative description. And you mentioned about how you had um, something that had exploded on YouTube that really got you a lot of opportunities. Tell us more about that and what happened there because obviously you optimized it. 
Yeah, it was in 2012, I thought I had the most brilliant idea in the world, right? I'm gonna make this 52 video series, one minute, once a week, improve your presentation and communication skills, and this was gonna blow up, right? This was going to be my big cash cow, and it was gonna happen that I'm gonna drip out one video a week for an entire year, but people were not gonna want to wait for these videos, so of course I had them on my website to buy them, and ladies and gentlemen, I've sold two digital download packages. <laughs> two and that did not go over like I thought so in September of 2013 when the year was up I looked at my stats and those 52 videos had about 60,000 views and I know a lot of people out there were thinking holy cow that's great I'd love to have 60,000 views on my YouTube channel but to be quite frank and I'm just gonna say I was pissed I had spent money on filming, you know, filming, videoing, whatever the correct digital term is for these videos, right? I rented out a studio, I got a producer, I got hair, I got makeup, I filmed 70 videos in a single day, knocked this stuff out, paid for them to be edited because that is not my strong suit, and then I strategically dripped them out over a year. Well, I was sad because I put effort into it. And a lot of us, you put effort into it, it doesn't go well and you just give up. We're not consistent. And I have been guilty of that more times than I care to admit. But for this one, I'm like, mm-mm, this, I know this is good. So I went in the background and started looking at the analytics on my YouTube page. And I'm kind of a data nerd and geek. That's probably obvious if you've been listening to me every month. And I thought, okay, how does this work? So I looked at the algorithms, I looked at the traffic patterns, I looked what people were searching for, what my referral sources were, dove down deep into that, and based on what I learned, implemented some changes, within 90 days I went from 60 to 90,000 views. A 50% increase just on these changes in a 90-day period, and in keeping those consistent, truth be told, I have not uploaded a single new YouTube video since then. I get about 30,000 views a month doing absolutely nothing at this point. My next series will come out in the fall, and now that I know this, I'm starting off on a way higher plateau, I feel, and it's amazing what understanding people and how they're trying to find information will do for your business. Great way to end this. Jill's Juicy Bites. She'll be back again uh, next month with another edition. Thanks, Kate. And that was this month's Juicy Bite. I'm Jill Schiffelbein, everyone. I will be back next month with another communication strategy for using technology to grow your business. Let's check in with the National Speakers Association President, John Molidor, for our monthly conversation. When we first sat down, Mr. President, one of the uh, interesting themes, I think, one of the, one of the new frontiers, and maybe it's not really a new frontier, but we're looking at it a lot more closely, is the idea of our brains in, in many different ways. And you said a big brain was important to you. So what does big brain mean? So for me, what it, it means is that how do we look at building brain-friendly presentations? Because we know that the brain functions in certain ways. We know that learning occurs slightly differently for everyone, but there are some general principles that we could look at in terms of how people learn. So if your presentation is fighting against what's a natural way to learn, you're not going to catch people. So that's one. The other one, who are the big brains that are looking at stuff, thinking about stuff we've never even thought of or we're not looking at as a profession? So will some type of avatar, virtual reality, will some type of uh, genomic type of learning 
uh, impact how people will learn in the future. And if we're not hearing from those people, if we're not checking that out, again, it's that disruptive technology that sort of comes in and poof, speakers are out of business, or poof, other people but, are moving in. But how do you do that? So now I not only have to get together, I mean, I, I have to pull together a, pres a presentation where I have to have uh, screenshots and I've got to have uh, props and I have to have lessons on elocution <laughs> and now I've got to go get brain x-rays of my group and ask the meeting planner to help us out with that? So, yes, I know there's people out there now shaking their heads going, I'm going to go in another profession. I'm not going to do this speaking anymore. But there are some simple things that you can be doing in terms of making your presentation uh, more brain friendly. Um, find the site. So Scientific America has got great site in terms of you can go on that. It's, it's very easy, free membership. And just find out what people are talking, scientists are thinking about and talking about. Um, it's finding the different areas, different websites that are looking literally at the new frontiers. And I mean, that's one of the ways I often search is like, what are the new frontiers in neuroscience or what's the latest, greatest in a certain area so that I'm at least trying to stay somewhat up to date on what's happening. I also tend to stay a little bit away from the newspaper or the magazine articles because they tend to magnify something that's really in its infancy stage. Are you saying exaggerate, <laughs> that the media exaggerates I would somewhat? never say that to someone like you. <laughs> but again, it goes back to snippets. I think we're a snippet society. That's also the danger, that we just want the little buckets of information. But can't the brain handle more than that? that the brain actually can, but you also have to train it because uh, we start to get sloppy. How do you train your brain? Well, basically, it's like what we would say is the best thing you could do is learn a new learn a new skill, teach yourself a new skill. Because when you do that, you have to lay out a whole neural network to learn this new skill. And as you're doing it, then it starts to connect to other areas. That's where creativity comes from. And so it's, it's as you learn something about that, you go, all right, how could I practically do it? So no, you don't have to go So out. like a language, <laughs> learn another language. language learn teach to yourself a new skill. Yep. Ukulele or yep. something. Yep. And then it's the other thing you have to be careful about. So people say, all right, I'll do crossword puzzles or Sudoku or, or games, and that's fine. But actually you keep doing it, actually the brain then acclimates to it. And so you have to mix it up all the time oh, so that so. you have some variety. Right, so variety, they, you know, that little trite saying is the spice of life is also good for your brain. Absolutely, absolutely. What happens if you don't train your brain at atrophies and... Well, what happens when you don't train it or you let it go is the neural connections start to snap or break down. I mean, that's the horrible thing about Alzheimer's is the neural connections literally get severed. And wow. so you hear stories all the time about someone who's suffering from Alzheimer's, they don't recognize their son or daughter or their wife because that connection is snapped. And so what we're finding is exercise, again, good nutrition, um, again, the old mom advice, eat your fruits and vegetables, is critical to brain health. And if we're not doing that, we're in trouble. So this is also critical, too, for, for the audience, because in reaching the audience, obviously everybody has a different brain and I was making the joke that what are we supposed to look at, look inside everybody's head, but Technically, if you are gathering information and doing a little bit more of that research, you should have a, a little bit of scoop on, I'm, I'm talking to engineers, I'm talking to lawyers, I'm talking to millennials, I'm addressing a college audience. So we come back to the same thing, that it really is about doing 
significant research. I think so, because again, like you say, oh, this is how I should present to millennials. This is how I should present to, well, it's probably should be more brain driven. So what's your largest uh, cortex in the brain? It's visual cortex. So if you're not doing something visual, you've just lost a big chunk of the person's brain. Smell's an area that most people never look at in terms of uh, the setup for the room. So because again, the brain's a sensory organism. So what are your visual, what's tactile, what's all those things? Well, have you ever given a speech where there's a great hamburger stand or something's <laughs> wafting through the room and you can tell that people are very anxious to leave even if they love you because they want to eat? So we would say the reptilian brain then trumps the cognitive brain because it's like if you're hungry or if you have to go to the bathroom, there's not much that's going into your head at that point. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm hungry, I'm out of here. And they literally will check out mentally. Um, if not, then physically going, i got to go to the bathroom, I'm well, gone. Well, here's a great question. If, if that happens, and it does happen, what about taking breaks? I've been to lectures where the, where the professor doesn't take a break, and they go on for two hours. There's no break in that, and I, as much as I'm trying to focus, I cannot focus for that length of time. Again, is it brain-friendly? Yes, you need to probably be looking at what is the maximum uh, amount of time that you can lecture, and that number's coming way down. And then the other thing that's scary is when you look at, we've trained now a generation of learners to do something every eight to 10 minutes, which is probably take a break because that's when commercials come on. And so we've trained a whole group that all of a sudden you can go, you don't have to pay attention, go to the refrigerator, go to the bathroom, go. And so how do you do that? You have to build in then breaks in your presentations, whether it be a quiz, whether you do some type of a, short story or joke or something to break it up to say I now am matching your learning style because you're expecting a break now physically it may not mean you get up and leave the room but you probably should be doing something because now you've trained brains to do this and if you're not matching it like you just said you may check out thank you very much mr. president you're welcome Kate so how many of you still have a vision board? Maybe you're still adding to that board, or perhaps you think that's old school. Mimi Brown, one of the chairs of this year's Speaker Magazine, joins us to talk about why it's still very relevant. Well, a vision board is a collection, a visual representation of what you want to be, do, or have most in your business. And the reason it's relevant is that your brain processes images 60,000 times faster than the written word. And not to be cliche, but if you can see it, you can be it. It's amazing to think about the power of putting maybe a stage that you want to speak on on your board. And then it and over time, because you're looking at it consistently, things will start to align that uh, that the next thing you know, you're standing on that stage speaking in front of that audience. What made you get into this field where you've used it as part of your business? Well, one of my favorite books is The Secret. And in The Secret, she touched lightly on the power of vision boards. So I did a little bit more research and I created my own. And one of the things that she says in the book is that I can't prove this works to for you only you can prove it. So I got together with one of my girlfriends for New Year's Day and we sat down and we dreamed really big about things we want to achieve in our life and in our businesses. And 
Within 15 days, I manifested three things off of my board. And that spoke to the power of the vision board. And it was a couple of folks or a couple of my other friends who I shared this experience with. And they said, Mimi, you absolutely have to share this with other people. So I started hosting vision board workshops. So when you host a vision board workshop, how does that work? So typically it's about a three to four hour event where I supply all the materials that you'll need. So the boards, the glue, glitter, I mean, anything you want, magazines. And then what I do on the front end is I explain to you Mimi's mantras for magical manifesting. And they are seven steps of how you actually activate the vision board. Because, you know, people say to me all the time, oh, it's great that you plaster stuff on a board and you glue pictures on, but it's the power behind the process that makes your ability to manifest things or for the things to come off of your board. So what are some of the steps? So one of the first steps is to name it and claim it. And so that's all about getting very clear about what you want. One of the things I find in any business that you have is if you can't get a very very clear and compelling vision, how do you expect it to come to fruition? And so we go through a process where you get very clear and very specific about what you want, down to colors and smells and experiences, and those are the things that will carry over on your board. What's the reaction been to this? Because now this has been a while since you started this. So I started doing this a couple years ago, and I've had just tremendous I would say I've had tremendous response or positive reception from people, testimonials from some of my clients who have used vision boards to uh, grow their businesses, get more clients, uh, maybe have that dream client they never, or dream speaking experience that they never thought that they would have. Wow. What's the goal for you personally? Well, it's so funny you ask that. So one of my goals is to host the largest vision board party Ever. And I want as many people as possible to experience the magic of a vision board. And I call my process Mimi's Mantras for Magical Manifesting. And they're not really magic, but when you see the process happen, it feels like it's magic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Time for another one-minute power thought on writing and creativity with my pal Dave Lieber. Dave, this time we're talking about what? Show not tell. Show not tell. What everybody, does that mean? Well, everybody says you got to when you write and when you got to speak, you got you got to show it, not tell it. What does that mean? Well, it means that as a writer and as a speaker, you make the audience feel like they're part of the movie that you're describing. So when you tell the story, they're actually in the story. It's almost like a theater in the round. They become part of it. And this is something I teach, so it's really hard to do it in a minute, but I think I can. You do it in scenes, where you set things up by scenes, and you show them like, a, like you're a playwright or a, or a cinematographer. And you use real dialogue from characters back and forth to show that this is what it'd be like if you were there. This is what they said. You can eavesdrop them. And then you describe what it looks like, what they're wearing, uh, what the lighting is like like the, how they eat, uh, what the, how they treat people, and all that really just goes into making a movie of your story. And that's how you show, not tell. All right, make a movie. Remember that. We'll be back again next time with Dave Lever for another one-minute power thought on writing and creativity. CSP Hillary Blair, who is the communication chiropractor, talks about aligning your voice 
and how to get it straight when we don't have our voice, when we lose our voice before a gig, when something happens with our voice, how it sounds, the impact on our presentations, the importance of your speaking voice. She is an expert in the field. So Hillary, as we start down this path of talking about voices, what is the number one question, or I guess questions that speakers tend to ask you? I get asked a lot. I lost my voice or I'm, my voice is strained. Two different ones. One being I was at a networking event before a gig and I'm strained and it was loud and that's a very common phenomenon. Or I'm sick and I'm strained, right? So that commonly people begin to panic if we use our voices. We're like, okay, it serves us. What do I do? Couple quick things. One is really simple. We want to do anything gentle with our voice to get the vocal folds vibrating to bring the blood there to help them heal. So a simple tongue trill or what we grew up with as the motorboat will help us the vibration come really gently. We tend to be overachievers, and so it's important not to overdo, right? You can't do too much. You want to do this just gently. Another one is the puppy whine. The puppy whine has been used for vocal recovery for years, though we don't hear about it as much anymore. Wow. All right. Those are great <laughs> tips, actually. I think I'll be using those myself. How about um, some bad habits that, let's, let's just take women, for example, mm-hmm. uh, women speakers, women trainers. Yeah. What, what are some of the trends or maybe um, things that you've really you've noticed that shouldn't really happen and how somebody uses their voice? I think what happens is we either want to be heard So we push our voice, and perhaps inappropriately, or we think we're too much. So we have these compensating habits that we develop, which I call code habits, that we develop. The push is when we push from the throat, as I mentioned, versus really powering from our athletic breath. I call it the athletic breath. We seem to know how to breathe great when we're doing athletics. And for some reason, when we start doing intellectual content, we start pushing from the throat and we shoot our head off and it starts to sound very, I call it the laser voice. Very pushed, very tight. And I picture your voice just chopping people's heads right off. And another one, or several, would be connected to some that are trending. So the upspeak at the end, which we tend to do so we don't seem too pushy or too know-it-all or too much, what I finally call the two-club. We try and compensate for the two-club by going up at the end. And when we go up at the end with upspeak or up-talk, it sounds like we don't know what we're talking about. Men do it. It's not the same reaction as women. And then we also have the vocal fry. Vocal fry is discussed everywhere. And it's the total surfer dude voice. Yeah, hanging out all chill. We tend to go to vocal fry to not seem like we're too enthusiastic. I have a great solution for your business. And it's been the hangout surfer dude voice for a long time, but now we associate it with Kim Kardashian. What happens sometimes is people have the upspeak or their voice, they're in little girl voice, too high, too shrill, and so they compensate by going all the way down to the fry. And it, that would be like saying, if you don't like New York, go to LA, when you have this whole country in between to explore. We have an amazing musical instrument, and we use very little of it. Do you think speakers pay enough attention to what they're doing with their voice? <laughs> That's a loaded question. That's okay. You're allowed to speak freely. I think that most people who get into speaking have excellent voices. So I think that comes naturally most of the time. And then when they run into trouble, I think they're nervous to say that. 
also, I think that the voice ages. What was working for them 10 years ago may not still be working. And they're embarrassed, they're nervous, they don't know what it's connected to, and so they back off. And a lot of people with some simple, simple, quick voice tips could have more longevity, could last longer, for sure. And I think also, anytime your voice shows up before you, that's a problem. Oh, explain that. <laughs> so, I compare it to lighting. If you're seeing a play or a show and you're, it's more about the lighting than the show, then you miss the message. If someone's voice is more important than what they're talking about, then no one really hears what they're talking about. It's all about the announcer voice or the cool voice or it can be men or women, whatever. No one's listening to me now. It's just the sound of my voice. So really, to be authentic, just talk in your just normal talk. voice. Just talk. And let it be free and let it be messy. We get pretty tight. That's the main thing, especially if we're trying to share content. I went to a very intellectual undergrad institution. And by the time I got out of there, my head was shooting off of my shoulders. I was misaligned. And it was all my thoughts. And when you misalign, our instrument is designed like a periscope. If you think we come up and out. And if your head is shot off, then you can't see up the periscope. Your voice can't come out. It gets very tight. It also changes how I come across. I look kind of pushy. We want to stay aligned. I say like a nice suit of clothes hanging on a hanger. Oh, that's a great analogy. I like that. What should we be concerned about with the audience? Because we, you know, we right. want to make a good impression. We yeah. want to get our content out there, our message. We want to be heard, yeah. but correctly. Yes. Two different worlds for us as speakers. One would be in person and using enough prosody, stolen from the jazz word. Prosody is the musicality of our voice to make it easy for people to follow us. And we tend to cut that out with more serious content or if we think the audience is too serious, we'll cut that out. When we cut out prosody, nobody knows what we're talking about. I worked with one guy and he was saying profits are up. I'm like, really? Yeah, how about profits are up? Just like bring it up, then I know profits are up. We'll have a shorter conversation. If I can hear with your prosody that profits up is a good thing. If you say profits are up, then I'm worried that profits are up is a bad thing. And then we take it to a whole other world when we talk about virtual. And virtual is a big part of our world now, whether webinars, training, phone conferences. And once you can't see us, we put story on. Believe me, I've made a fortune as a voiceover actor with the face that I have. And so I know what it's like to have the voice of a new diet drug when I look like this. So it's awesome. So we need to realize we need to shift the tonality of our voice when we can't be seen. We need to be more animated vocally on the radio, webinars, and phone than we do when you, we can be seen. When you uh, went down the path as a child actor, yes, went to the institution that misaligned you, yes, and then came out. Yeah. Did you think you would make a living, really, talking about all aspect uh, aspects rather of the voice? No, no. I have always wanted. I always wanted to be an actor, right? And I had that shift part where along the way, where I was realizing I got my master's degree in acting. And I realized I am much more delighted by coaching people to do a better job than doing it myself. And I really had a switch. I still do some voiceover. It's good to hang out in there a bit, but I don't do stage anymore at all. And I'm thrilled to work with business people. I work predominantly with business people now. I have a team. We still work with some actors, but yeah. Wow. Good stuff. Thank you. 
Time to take it out of the park on Voices of Experience. Sitting down with us this month is C Agency's Krista Haberstock. C Agency manages, consults, and represents top keynote speakers. Check this out. They made the Inc.'s list of the 5,000 fastest growing companies, private companies, in America, showing up at 1,036 on that list for 2016. Krista knows how to book her clients. Krista, so the most basic question that everybody wants to know is how do you get booked by not sucking (laughs) for one thing that's the basics you ask for the basics Mm -hmm. so obviously you know joe calloway talks about being killer on stage and you have to do that or else you know you're not even in the game but um there is a good three quarters 73 to 78 percent of all of your bookings are going to come from referral meeting planners find you because they see you on stage or they have a friend who saw you on stage so that's how you get booked. So speak more to speak more. And then you got to back it up with, uh, you know, once they get your name, they better not be disappointed when they go to your website and watch your video. Yeah, you say video is number one, right? If you're going to yeah. invest money somewhere because, mm-hmm. you know, maybe everybody doesn't have thousands and thousands of dollars, the place to put it is into the video. Yeah, that's the number one marketing tool. Everyone's going there. And there's a, you know, there's even a real strong push for the TED Talks, too. Like, there's, um, you know, TEDx is everywhere. You know, you can't throw a rock without hitting one. But it's a, it's a real legitimate brand. So if, if you have a TED Talk, that's a really good thing, too, because a lot of people, I was chatting with Mike Rayburn just this morning, and he said on the conference call that a lot of the executives say, they don't really even say, it's so strange, oh, I didn't watch your demo, I watched your TED Talk. Which, you know, is another layer, added layer to this whole thing. Because I'm a big, huge, of course, I like, the demo is the holy grail. Like, if you've got a great demo, then you're going to win the business. And mm-hmm. if you don't, then you won't. It's, that's it. So, if it's the holy grail, what do you need on the demo? I mean, you know, see, this is the, where it can be tricky. You have lots of lots of what you think is really good information mm-hmm. or good flow. And you might have a bunch of really big stages and then smaller venues, but they were killer. What, would, what, what should you put on the, the video that knocks somebody's socks off? You know, and I feel like that's a different question to answer for... Um, like different genres of speakers. If you're an Everest climber or an adventurer of some kind, you're going to have the razzle-dazzle of the media stuff up front. You know, it's like legitimizing yourself as that, what you are, like an adventurer, whatever. Um, And if you're a content speaker, you know, I still think there should be some razzle-dazzle up front, but the content is is obviously king. Um, But I, you know, there's so much that goes into a demo, but you want to show yourself as large market as possible. So the largest stage possible. Um, some people even say three, four camera shoot, two camera shoot, you know, will do the trick, I think. And um, an ambient mic into the audience to get their reactions. Crowd reactions mm-hmm. is very important. And, um, you know, the sound quality of the video is critical. Um, just, just, you know, <laughs> everything you can do, just everything large you can market. do, just make it as large market as possible, big crowds. And if you got yourself on smaller stages, you know, you pepper that in too, because, you know, and for women, you put yourself in different outfits and, you know, maybe men, you know, different tie or what have you, or, you know, or maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's the same outfit, but, but just show yourself in as many different ways as possible. Right. But the other thing is, okay, so, so referrals, looking at the video, I've seen this happen a lot. Going to LinkedIn, going to LinkedIn, going to LinkedIn, some meeting planners. 
Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that unusual? I mean, no, it doesn't surprise me. I don't know. I, you know, where do we go when we look for stuff? Like if I get, you know, we go online, mm -hmm. you know, like even I'll just snap a picture of something like a, you know, a new anything, like, you know, a tech toy or something. And Best Buy is just Amazon storefront now because, <laughs> you know, people go in there and they just, they go, okay, that looks interesting. Then they go to add, they test it out online and then they, they buy it online. What do you think, because uh, again, this is a tough question because every scenario is different. Whether you're talking about whatever the corporation's doing, it could be a regional speech. It could be, you know, there's just, there's a lot of opportunity out there, frankly, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So how do you capitalize on all fronts? Do you have to... Do you have to narrow, do you think, what you do, or can you be broad? You mean with the video? Yeah. Or, um, and again, I think that's a different question for, you know, I'm thinking about the NSA membership that mm -hmm. would be watching sure. this. And there's, um, you know, I work with the kind of top tier corporate keynote, keynoters. Um, but there's a lot of people who like niche themselves in different, different places. So, yeah, I think that's got to be a per question, per speaker kind of question to ask themselves. I know that's a non-answer, but I don't know that there's a way to actually right. all that. Right. Keynotes, what, what's happening with keynoters? As you say, you know, you have top mm -hmm. corporate keynoters. H have you seen some changes in the last few years? There's always a bit of ebb and flow. Again, I'm on the other side of the industry, so I'm on the management side. And so we get requests for specific speakers and all of our speakers' businesses have grown consistently over the last seven years. They're getting more gigs for more money um, and the market's continually going up. So I, I think it's still trending up. There are some, I know some, I know some agents who are saying, you know, content, there's no motivation. And I, I don't believe that's true. Um, but I think if you were just sheer motivation and you don't deliver any content and content being anything that can be ROI that they go back and is transformative either personally or professionally or hopefully both then that's always going to always going to win the day so that's a good a good point ROI mm -hmm. is always 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 important mm -hmm. why 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 do they want to bring even if they have a big name it doesn't matter what is it what why are they bringing them in you have to have ROI yeah you know um i joke that uh, there's never been a meeting planner that's lost their job over dessert, but they have lost their job over a speaker. Mm. <laughs> so I think it's really important that you show the value that you've had. And if three quarters of your business, three quarters of your inbound business is going to be by referral, then it, it's got to have a ripple effect. It can't just be, you know, the Chinese food kind of analogy where, you know, they'd have like a keynote and um, there's no real, no real thread I don't know about ROI, how that, what that means to different people. You know, for a leadership speaker, a business speaker, there's um, implementation things that you can do. But again, if you're like an adventurer, there may not be like implementation things, but you've got to get them talking and feeling and have that last. That's the ROI on those kind of things. Oh, that's brilliant. Why this career for you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have to ask you the question, sure. right? I, man, I've like many people fell totally backwards into this. Yeah. My big brother is a professional speaker. Oh, is Hall his of name Famer. Vince? <laughs> yeah. Vince Pacenti is my brother. And so him being a speaker introduced me to this whole world. And he's married to um, a woman who used to own a speaker's bureau. And so I was with her for 10 years. 
and then went on the other side of the industry now I'm on the representation side so I'm not on the bureau side anymore but still selling speakers in some capacity right so it was in the it was in the family blood line. weirdly yeah I know I don't know how this <laughs> you don't like you don't like wake up one morning and go I'm gonna you know sell motivational speakers <laughs> <laughs> it's such a small little niche. That's man. great conversation when you're somewhere. <laughs> hey, what do you do? Yeah. You're really cool. And you yeah. say, I sell motivational speakers. I'm in human trafficking. <laughs> I'm in human trafficking. <laughs> this is what we do. I judge people for a living. <laughs> and then I sell them. And I crush their dreams if it doesn't work. <laughs> That's a perfect place to end this. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Thank you. The dream killer. <laughs> Here's Kate Delaney with If You Want to Get Heard. If you want to be heard, just do it. Inertia is powerful. Sometimes it feels like you're almost choking on it. What's really stopping you from writing that blog, a book, another killer keynote speech? Ever miss an opportunity because you waited too long to get it just right? Or maybe you never even got started? Yep, it's a cliche, but how many trains have left stations and you were standing on the platform? Trust me, I've been there too. Are you killing yourself obsessing over every word you write or say? Or are you re-recording a podcast 10 times fiddling with a YouTube video you'll never make public? Are you waiting for lightning to strike? Inspiration? A jolt of creativity? I'm not advocating no preparation or research, just getting there faster in a world where content is king. The more you create, the better shot you have at booking more business. Okay, Kate, I'm ready. Oh, geez. We're out of time again? Join us next month. I promise you'll hear NSA President-elect Brian Walter and his strategies for, I think, making a mint. Yeah, that sounds good. Oh, Brian, so, so sorry. Talk to you next month, folks, on Voices of Experience. Okay, Kate, I'm ready. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.